Our last discussion regarding the Spanish Inquisition is set to cover the fall of the Inquisition and then retrospectively looking back at the effects of Spain's 300-year-long social control experiment. Let's first finish the story of the Inquisition before we unpack its legacy. We've already witnessed how the Inquisition needed to constantly find a new nemesis to maintain its purpose as well as its funding. If you were to make a television show about the Inquisition, you could get five seasons without repeating the main villain featured in each season. After successful campaigns against the conversos, old Christians, Protestants, Moriscos, and witches, they were running out of others to cast in the villain role. The beginning of the literal end of the Holy Office occurred during the occupation of Spain by Napoleon Bonaparte's brother, Joseph. One of the first acts of the newly crowned King Joseph by the French regime was to abolish the Holy Office of the Inquisition on December 4, 1808. Following the first defeat of the Bonapartes, King Ferdinand VII restored the Spanish Inquisition in 1814, but this was done more in name than reality. There was not an outpouring of love at the reappearance of the Inquisition. The Inquisitors existed only if they could continuously stoke fear in the hearts of the Spaniards. As part of their propaganda, they were the dam that held back the darkness of the devil. The French conquest gave the Spanish the chance to experience life without that dam, and the results were not what they expected. There had not been a massive societal upheaval during the six years without the Inquisition. Liberal opposition from within Spain arose in 1820, and the king was forced to dismiss the Holy Office once again. Officially, the government of Queen Isabella II passed the final decree of suppression on July 15, 1834, officially ending the Holy Office. Surely, during genuine moments of crisis, the actions of the Holy Office were widely championed. However, the Inquisition was never designed or funded in a way that would allow it to remain quietly in the background until an emergency surfaced. For most areas of the country, the Spanish Inquisition was a dreary fog that hung over society, but one that did very little. After its explosive entry into Spain's history via the clearing of the conversos, it slipped quietly into the stream of daily life until it had finally run its course and dried up. The lasting image of the Inquisition was left to be defined by others. Since the 16th century, opponents of the tribunal had ruthlessly assaulted it via the printing press. The Grand Inquisitor's office refused to get drawn into these debates. Their obsession with secrecy and non-disclosure meant that hardly any outsiders had any clue what the Inquisition's rules and rationale were. By refusing to get drawn into any public debate or offering up a defense for their activities, it left the field wide open to its enemies to determine its place in history. 
the Protestants were the ones that were most successful in defining the Inquisition. The general term for this propaganda is known as the Black Legend of the Inquisition. The origin of the legend can be best attributed to Antonio del Coro, a Spanish Lutheran who wrote under the pseudonym Reginaldus Gonzalves Montavenus. Del Coro claimed first-hand knowledge for his book called A Discovery and Plain Declaration of Sundry Subtil Practices of the Holy Inquisition of Spain. Historians have determined that his claim of being a victim of the Inquisition is the first of many falsehoods that he published in 1567. The picture painted by him of the Inquisition is a wholly corrupt institution, with every single Inquisition official as venal and deceitful, and that every single victim of the Holy Office was innocent. The punishments that he describes, as well as his descriptions of the Inquisition's state of their jails, are notably false. Most histories written by contemporary scholars relied upon the insider account of Del Coro as their definitive source. True historical scholarship requires you to look at the available information while divesting yourself of the emotion that it invokes. With that in mind, let's look at the effects of the Spanish Inquisition. start with where the Inquisition began, with the Spanish Jews. The Jews were the first casualty of the Spanish Inquisition. Those that were unwilling to convert were forcibly banished in 1492. Those that departed found their new homes just as uninviting as the one they left. Many ended up returning to Spain to join the growing ranks of the conversos, while many believed that they could continue to practice their cultural traditions at the minimum and at most Judaism in secret. The Spanish Inquisition succeeded in eradicating both the Jewish culture and faith over the next 100 years. This period experienced the highest rates of executions and torture. Jews came back to the Iberian Peninsula in 1704 when England took the city of Gibraltar during the War of Spanish Succession. The Spaniards attempted to force a treaty condition upon England that no Jews or Muslims could reside in the city of Gibraltar. The English honored this treaty agreement in the same manner that the Spanish had adhered to their treaty agreements with Muslims following the fall of Granada. By 1717, there were 300 new Jewish families there with their own synagogue. By the 19th century, the Jews were a healthy one-tenth of the population of the rock. The end of the Inquisition did not mean an end to anti-Semitism for Spain. The only surviving memory of the once thriving Jewish communities in Algemaras were the Sambanitos, with Jewish names hanging up in local parishes. The right-wing governments that took over Spain, which came to a head with the Franco dictatorship, adopted the nationalistic view of the Jews as the prototype enemy, sometimes distinct from, and other times identified with the Freemasons the Illuminati of the era. While there was a deep and devastating effect upon the Jewish people, there was a much less significant effect upon the Spanish people themselves. 
Despite the Inquisition having the best records of any modern-day tribunal, it is still impossible to get a good, accurate count of how many individuals were sentenced to death by the Inquisition. The first historian to take on this Herculean task was Lorente. His study was published at the beginning of the 19th century, and he posited that the overall figure of victims of the Inquisition were 340,592. Of those, 31,913 individuals were relaxed, the favored term for execution by the Inquisition. Returning to Lorente's numbers, 17,659 were burnt in effigy, and 291,021 were reconciled or given minor sentences. Within 50 years, the historians were calling into doubt the conclusions of Lorente. His blunder, according to historians that followed up on his work, was that he assumed the Inquisition's criminal prosecutions were constant throughout the 300 years of the Holy Office. Therefore, whenever records were unaccounted for, Lorente took the average of what had happened prior and assumed consistency and filling the average into the gaps. Extrapolating an average disregards the facts that the Inquisition had clear and distinct phases, by far the deadliest of which was the beginning and how they dealt with Judaizing conversos. The best numbers come from Catholic author Joseph Carl Hefley, who along with Pascal believed that the amounts burnt between 1481 and the death of Queen Isabella in 1504 was no more than 2,000. By this point in time, Judaizing had disappeared from Spain, and the Inquisition shifted its attention to old Christians and Protestants, neither of which were relaxed at high rates. Moriscos were treated as threats to the state rather than as heretics, which in turn put them in prison rather than tied to a stake at an auto de fe. Finally, we discussed in great length how few witches the Inquisition burned. The most serious efforts to calculate the numbers of victims of the Spanish Inquisition go to Jamie Contreras and Gustav Hennessen. They estimate that between 1540 and 1700, the Holy Office only arrested 49,092 individuals not the 340,000 that Lorente suggested. They also believe that there was a total of 125,000 trials that took place, which is one-third the number of what Lorente suggested. Contreras and Henenson break down the numbers further, revealing that unseemly talk and blasphemy were the number one charges, accounting for a total of 27% of all Inquisition charges. Next came Mohammedism at 24%, third was Judaism at 10%, fourth was Lutheranism at 8%, and lastly superstitions of various kinds including witchcraft made up 5% of the Inquisition cases after the Conversos era. The death penalty was administered in 3.5% of the cases, but only 1.8% of the condemned were executed as the rest were burned in effigy. This was necessary not only because the accused resided in another nation, but many times it was because they were already dead prior to the trial. In fact, the Inquisition regularly dug up bodies so that they could burn them after the trial. In other words, between 1540 and 1700, a period of 160 years, it is likely that the Inquisition sent 810 individuals to their death. 
factoring in the prior era of conversos, and is likely that the 300-year institution of the Spanish Inquisition was responsible for fewer than 10,000 death sentences. By the way of comparison, the religious wars of Europe accounted for tens of thousands of victims. France's St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre killed 3,000 over the course of three days. At the end of the 19th century, the novelist Juan Valero exclaimed, quote, All the Moors, Jews, and heretics arrested and burnt in Spain in the course of 300 years by no means equal the number of witches burned in Germany. The closing off of Spain to these religious conflicts, which is largely credited to the Inquisition, likely saved lives. This does not excuse the individual tragedies that occurred at the feet of the Holy Office. Pope John Paul II issued a pontifical declaration of memory and reconciliation in which the Catholic Church asked to be pardoned for the excesses committed by the Inquisition. A reading of the document, however, leaves one with the impression that the abuses committed, regrettable in themselves, were, after all, less numerous than those of other religions during the same period. At the time the Inquisition was formed, there were no modern liberties anywhere in Europe. Every state practiced intolerance. The Inquisition, rather than taking liberties away, merely preserved the lack of rights already inherent to the time. This does not excuse the extremes of the Inquisition, but it is simultaneously also wrong to single out Spain for their faults. A thorough examination shows that the Inquisition sent significantly less men and women to their deaths. This is true even if you include the considerable longevity of the Holy Office versus the suddenness of other nations' purges. The Inquisition's reach went beyond the burnings of the auto de fe, however. While most Spaniards never interacted once during their entire life with the Holy Office, the mere presence of the Inquisition constrained their natural freedom of thought and expression. It also had obvious influences on literature, science, and the economy. Astonishingly, a study by Jordi Vidal Robert in 2014 found that the Inquisition had no effect on the levels of societal trust or social polarization. Despite the existence of anonymous denouncements that resulted in the literal risk of your life and limbs, Spaniards never turned against one another. This indicates that they believed in both the purpose of the Inquisition and in their capacity to successfully carry that purpose out. The homogeneous religious nature of the country and the longevity of the organization likely played a significant role in this fact. Remember that the Inquisition's 300-year-long history is longer than the entire history of the United States of America. At the end of the Inquisition, Torquemada is father to the Spaniards' history in the same way that George Washington is to your nation's past. Next, let's examine the impact on literature. 1440 witnessed the invention of the printing press by Johannes Gutenberg. Prior to this point, books had to be copied individually by hand, and typically that hand belonged to a Catholic monk. By controlling all of the hands that controlled the quills, the Catholic Church was able to repress notions that it found objectual. The printing press broke down this control mechanism. 
By the mid-1500s, wealthy individuals across Europe were not only able to obtain copies of their favorite books, they were able to get them published as well. In Spain, however, an individual ran the risk of offending the Inquisition if they published the wrong thing. Spaniard Antonio de Alros wrote in September 1559 that the times are such that one should think carefully before writing books. The Catholic Church's practice of banning books began in 1515 at the Lateran Council and became official doctrine during the Council of Trent in 1564. England entered the fray in 1538 via licensing laws, and the 1540s witnessed various Italian authorities limiting what could be published. When Spain began to ban books in 1558, it was late to the censorship party. That year, 1558, was a significant year for the Inquisition, as that was the year the Protestants were discovered to be actively evangelizing their faith within the borders of Spain. The first censorship law was enacted on September 7th and only applied to Castile. It had three effects. First, it banned the importation of all books printed from other Spanish realms. Secondly, it obliged printers to seek permission in the form of a license from the Council of Castile before publishing any books. And third, it laid down a strict procedure for the operation of future censorship. There were some notable weaknesses within this legislation. First, it only applied to Castile, and secondly, most Spaniards could simply ignore it, which they did in droves. They would publish without permission or illicitly smuggle in books from other regions. Evidence shows that 40% of available literature in Spain during this era was unlicensed. One would assume that the harsh punishment apparatus that was the Spanish Inquisition would undoubtedly deter such actions. But there's no evidence that any author or printer, besides those condemned as Protestants, were sent to the stake. The same was not true for nations such as England and France during this same time period, once again serving to show us that despite their reputation, the Spanish Inquisition appear to have been less crazed than their peers. Eventually, the laws of Castile, ineffective as they were, were spread to the rest of the provinces of Spain, and in 1558, the Inquisition was ordered to officially put together and post an index of banned books. It was put together with all haste, as religious works dominated the earliest era of the printing press. It is estimated that three-fourths of all the books published between 1445 and 1520 were works of a religious nature. By the summer of 1559, Spain had registered approximately 700 forbidden books, the biggest category of which were those in Latin. There were only seven books on the entire index that were not published in a foreign nation. There are two distinct opinions about the impact that the Inquisition had upon Spanish literature. First, the position that is strongly supported by traditional historians is that there was zero negative influence. Menendez y Pelayo asserted that never was there more written in Spain or better written than in the two golden centuries of the Inquisition. Masterpieces like Don Quixote, written in 1605, stand out from this period. The non-traditionalist historian view, which comes from modern studies, is that the Spaniards virtually ceased to write and think during this era. They point to the strides that other European nations made, which serves to remind all that there is no Spanish equivalent of England's Shakespeare. 
the available evidence does not serve to validate either viewpoint as correct. Most of the books that were prohibited were never within the financial reach of the typical Spanish reader, and were never physically available in large numbers anywhere on the peninsula. The indexes in this way were more of a guide of what the Inquisition would like to prohibit. While there may not have been the extreme damage that the modern historians allege, there likely was undetectable damage done as writers exercised self-censorship to avoid running afoul of publishers. Unfortunately, it's impossible to quantify the damage of this. Some of the same historians that believe self-censorship occurred also believe that writers worked their way around it by utilizing coded language that their readers would be able to interpret as the true meaning of the work. Regrettably, they did not see fit to provide us a code detector included with every purchase. Besides the indexes, Spain also instituted prior authorization edicts that required a work of literature to be pre-approved by the Inquisition. This is reminiscent of the way that censorship occurs today in the People's Republic of China. There, everything that appears on air or in print must first be run by a government censor in order to receive approval. A couple of incentives were provided to the Spanish people to encourage authors to go along with the prior authorization requirements. First, if there was anything objectionable, you would have to deal with a publisher rather than an inquisitor. Secondly, the author was granted exclusive privilege for 10 years to the day from authorization. This was similar to how drug companies today have an exclusive time period guaranteeing them a major profit before generic drugs are allowed to legally knock off their formula. The protections of an author's revenues may have offset the literary damage done via any self-censorship that may have occurred. What was unequivocally lost were works written in Hebrew and Arabic, as Spain's acceptance of censorship led them down the slippery slope to book burning. The Middle Ages and early modern periods were filled with book-burning incidents. Religion played a leading role with Martin Luther torching Catholic works and the Vatican attempting to incinerate anything published by the Protestants. Wikipedia has its fascinating own entry cataloging history's largest purges of literature. Spain's earliest book-burning occurs in 1509 in Navarre. The purpose of this was to aid the eradication of Arabic texts after the Granada uprisings. In 1567, King Philip II ordered all Moriscos to burn their own books in Arabic. In the Islamic faith, the Quran is viewed as a living entity, much in the same way the Catholics treat the Eucharist as the living body of God. Their faith dictates in detail how to correctly dispose of a Quran if it is damaged in some manner. While burning is one of the available options, you can imagine that the Moriscos were not too excited to destroy their sacred book. Many scholars believe that it was the order of King Philip that led to the Second Granada Uprising. Despite the uprising, more than one million works in Arabic were destroyed. Only the ones on medicine were given a pardon as they were shipped off to the University of Alcara for safekeeping. By 1511, all Arabic books were banned. In 1585, the Inquisition waged war against the collective works of Pascali Vassala, a Maltese Dominican friar, whom the Inquisition had deemed an obscene homoerotic poet. 
and yes, I quickly searched for a copy of his translated poems and regrettably came up empty-handed. The desire to eliminate texts that they disagreed with traversed the Atlantic as New Spain's Inquisition burned Mayan imagery and codices as well as a Spanish study of the Aztec culture prior to the conquistadors' arrival. The social control desires of the Inquisition are made obvious through the works included on these indexes. On the third index, for example, several fictional works were banned alongside prominent Protestant, Jewish, and Islamic works. The Inquisition clarified that the fictional works were banned because they were, quote, written without skill and are full of improbabilities, therefore it is a waste of time to read them. Don Quixote saw only one sentence censored, the one that asserts that, quote, charitable works performed with tepid enthusiasm and laxity have no merit and no value. Ordinary Spaniards seemed to ignore all of this. Many authors avoided the licensing and censorship process because of the delays that they caused, indicating that they dreaded economic loss of revenue more than they feared falling afoul of the inquisitors. Spanish writers were not restricted in any way when they were publishing books abroad. Ironically, Spaniards were the only nation on earth at this time that allowed for international publishing devoid of restrictions. Even more ironically, these unrestricted and unreviewed international publications by Spaniards were subsequently then imported back into Spain. I imagine there are few, if any, examples of a criminal organization illegally laundering literature, making this the closest thing that history has to a book laundering scheme. The evidence is so mixed that I'll let you decide whether literature was harmed or not. It is clear, however, that the Inquisition attempted to control what Spaniards were reading. It is less obvious if they had any direct effect or not. Either way, the damage, or lack thereof, was not significant. So what about the effects on science? Well, the impact on science was also largely indirect as the study of science was not ingrained in the conscious or hearts of the Spanish people at the time of the Inquisition's arrival. Religion and scientific understanding find themselves oftentimes at odds. I like to explain this with examples regarding the Catholic practice of exorcism. The Catholic Church still has 100 priests that actively exorcise demons from the world. The numbers of exorcisms performed, however, have dramatically declined. This is because our understanding of science has replaced religious rationalizations. Take, for instance, epilepsy. Seizures are triggered within individuals who appear to look and feel perfectly fine. Once a seizure is triggered, however, that healthy person suddenly collapses to the ground and begins convulsing, oftentimes to the point of foaming at the mouth. Now, if you're not aware of what a seizure is, it is easy to suppose that a demon is within that person. But until the latter half of the 20th century, exorcisms were a common form of treating epilepsy. If you evaluate Spain during this time period against its peer nations, it does not rate highly regarding science. In fact, Spain had the least number of university-affiliated scientists. Young physician Juan de Cabriado lamented his nation's lack of progression in 1687 
when he wrote that it was sad and shameful that, like savages, we have to be the last to receive the innovations and knowledge that the rest of Europe already has. Manuel de la Revilla felt that the Spanish intolerance, even more than their despotism, had ruined the culture of his homeland. He pointed out that in Spain there were no men of the stature of Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, Newton, Pascal, or Descartes to be found. While Spain may have influenced the world of literature, there was no such effect on the world of science. The Inquisition helped to enforce Spain's scientific black hole, but the truth of the matter was that the homogeneous Catholic nation that Ferdinand and Isabella sought was always going to block any scientific advancement that was at odds with the church. The Inquisition's largest contribution to the hindrance of science was the expulsion of many of the dynamic forces within Spain's borders. Jews, conversos, Muslims, and moriscos were all restricted in professions that they could pursue. Furthermore, mass expulsions limited the pool of individuals that could be called upon to provide university students. While the Inquisition carried out and championed the expulsions, it did not order them. Some of the blame has to sit at the feet of the master that let the Inquisition off of its chain. The Inquisition was not intolerant of science. It took nine years after the Vatican trial of Galileo for Spain to place his works on the banned index, meaning that long after his conviction, Spaniards could access the theories of Galileo regarding the heliocentric universe. Those indexes also prohibited the works of Kepler and Copernicus, but not because of their scientific claims. Kepler, for instance, was banned because he referred to the King of England as the defender of the Christian faith, which of course could not be true after Henry VIII abandoned Catholicism to form his own faith. Next, let's turn to the economic effects of the Inquisition. As early as 1492, Isabella understood that the policies they pursued would damage the economic trajectory of Spain. Conversos formed the backbone of many white-collar industries in Spain, and Moriscos did the same for blue-collar work in the rural areas of the kingdom. Each time expulsion policies were pursued, the economy took a tumble. However, during this same time, the overall economy of Spain dramatically rose to become the greatest in the world. Spain was able to survive the recessions caused by its policies because the state benefited greatly during the 16th centuries from their colonies in the New World. The massive influx of gold from Latin America infused the crown with more than enough money to survive the economic downturn caused by its xenophobic policies. In fact, Spain was so flushed with cash that it obstructed the establishment of capitalism throughout the Spanish Empire. Spanish prices remained the highest in Europe for the period that we are studying. Wages soon matched the rising curve of prices, whereas everywhere else the disparity between prices and wages increased. The lack of high wages in other nations allowed companies to make such a profit that they were able to reinvest it back into their companies the act of which created more efficiency, which in turn created more capital, which in turn resulted in the rise of capitalism. This never happened in Spain. As wages kept pace with rising prices, profits were lower, 
as was the accumulation of capital. Spanish businessmen never had the excess capital to reinvest into their factories, and for that reason, Spain did not move into the capitalist era. Despite Spain having a commercial monopoly, other European nations' cheap goods displaced the Spanish ones in the markets of the Americas. It was worth it for the government in Mexico to invoke the anger of Spain over the buying of cheaper British goods. There were other contributing economic factors. For instance, a 2014 analysis finds that the Inquisition is associated with a negative 3-5% correlation with urbanization, meaning that less Spaniards migrated to cities during the 16th, 17th, and 18th century. That makes sense as the Inquisition was mostly centered within the cities. Urban centers acted as centers for economic growth during these eras, meaning that the Inquisition slowed or at least hindered the development of a modern Spanish economy. Additionally, it is found that the Spanish adopted newer technology at a far lesser rate than their peers, once again impeding their own economic development. Lastly, let's take a look at the effects of the Spanish Inquisition in the New World. Spanish America was divided into vice royalties. New Spain, with Mexico City as its capital, included what is now the southwest of the United States, all of Mexico, and Central America, as well as the Caribbean islands of Santo Domingo, Puerto Rico, and Cuba. The second vice royal, was found in New Castile, or Peru, with Lima as its capital. It included almost all of South America, minus Brazil and the Guineas. New Castile was forced to break up further, however, which resulted in New Granada being formed in 1610, with Cartagena as its capital. This viceroyal included Venezuela, Colombia, Panama, and part of Ecuador. It was further subdivided in 1776 when Rio de la Plata was formed with the territories of Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay, with Buenos Aires as its capital. For inexplicable reasons, the Philippines were part of the original Viceroyal of New Spain. Jews and conversos featured prominently in nearly every Spanish conquest of the New World. Columbus had at least six conversos with him on his first voyage including Luis de Torres as his chief interpreter. Jewish soldiers were with Cortes when he completed the conquest of the Aztecs. The Spanish attempted to bar all conversos from reaching the shores of the New World by instituting rules that only a fourth-generation Catholic could obtain passage, effectively eliminating anyone who had converted to Christianity during the mass conversion, conversion eras. This test of blood purity failed, however, as conversos were able to buy permits of exemptions from corrupt officials and were smuggled aboard by Portuguese Jews who worked as sailors on many of the ships. Ship captains would disembark their conversos at secret inlets along the Honduran coast. These actions were so widespread that the Portuguese history books refer to it as the Penetration Portuguesa or Portuguese penetration. In the 1600s, between 3 and 5,000 Portuguese conversos arrived in the New World 
and approximately 2,000 of them settled in New Spain. By the 1630s, conversos lived in almost every town in the overseas Spanish Empire. It was only a matter of time before the Inquisition followed them there. The warning sirens were sounded as early as 1508, as bishops in Havana and Puerto Rico informed Spain that the New World was being crammed with conversos, moriscos, and other heretics. The first New World auto de fe followed in October of 1528. Two Jews were relaxed, and two more were reconciled at the event. Official Inquisition branches were established for both New Spain and New Castile. The branches operated in near-identical forms as their Iberian counterparts. What was different, however, was the religious zeal of their constituents. Edict of Graces were mostly ignored by residents in the Americas, and it was rare for a neighbor to denounce one another. For those few that were implicated, the punishment slightly differed as well. Instead of being assigned as a gallery rower, for instance, individuals were assigned as servants in New World monasteries. Women were typically forced to serve in either hospitals or monasteries, and it was extremely rare for the New World Inquisition to sentence a heretic to death. There was better uses for them in the colonization process. This iteration of the Inquisition declined faster than that of the Old World. Around 1665, there was a marked decrease in the severity of punishments given to heretics. This included a decline in the amount of confiscated goods seized, the length of jail sentences assigned, as well as fines collected in the New World. Remarkably, the conversion of the indigenous peoples was never included within the jurisdiction of the Inquisition. As was the case for full Jews in Spain, the Inquisition ignored the heresy of those that had yet to convert. Franciscan and Dominican missionaries took over that task. The Inquisition only ever participated in the gathering of evidence against native converts that stepped outside the boundaries of Catholic dogma, of which there were plenty as the indigenous peoples had zero experience with Christianity in their faiths. This made it extremely difficult for natives to conceal themselves as false converts. Unlike that of Judaism and Islam, their beliefs had literally nothing in common with that of the conquerors. The punishment and conversion of the local people was pursued with the same level of enthusiasm and punishment by the local missionaries as they would have had had the Inquisition been more involved. As we come to an end of our study regarding the Spanish Inquisition, we discover that the legacy of the Holy Office is very different than we were led to believe. Protestant propaganda and our own failure to dive into the distinctions between the medieval Inquisition and the Spanish Inquisition still maintain a firm grip over the legacy and our understanding of the Inquisition. Founded in 1478, the Spanish Inquisition directly aided Ferdinand and Isabella's goal to create a homogenous Catholic nation subservient to the monarchy. Supported by mass conversions and expulsions, the Inquisition terrorized conversos, moriscos, and Protestants for more than 300 years. The Holy Office attempted, albeit with mixed results, to serve as a social control apparatus via their systems of public denunciations, elaborate public executions, and imposing indirect control over the arts of literature and science. 
Although their use of torture was limited, the secrecy that shrouded the Inquisition resulted in history assuming and writing the worst of the Holy Office. When looked at through the dispassionate eyes of a historian unaffected by the practices of the Inquisition, one sees an organization that was far more regimented and thoughtful in the pursuit of their mission. While that mission may have been flawed, as our society shows that there's great value to a multicultural society, the Spanish Inquisition helped to usher in a golden era of absolute rule in Spain. It also kept the nation out of the Protestant religious wars that caused far more death and destruction. And finally, it was far more lenient to the arts, including the art of witchcraft than any of its European peers. I hope that you've enjoyed our series on the Spanish Inquisition. I have to admit my own original disappointment that it was not filled with more stories of dark torture, but the truth is sometimes far more fascinating than history's imagination. Until next time, keep working to uncover the truth of the world.